Well, I want to invite you to turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 12. It's page 899 in your pew Bible, so please turn with me there. John chapter 12, and our passage is verses 20 through 36 this morning. It's a beautiful passage. It's a passage that will help us discover what Jesus is all about and what the Christian life is all about. That's what you came to hear this morning, that's what you'll discover in this passage. So let's go ahead and read it now. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If everyone serves me, he must also follow me. And where I am... There will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. This is... God's Word to us this morning. We pray that He would write the truth and the grace of that Word upon all of our hearts. Well, yesterday evening, Rebecca and Sarah and I had to run up to D'Iberville to run a few errands, and we were in a store and we got to talking with one of the employees in the store, and she was just telling us a little bit about her life, and she kept using phrases such as, before Katrina, after Katrina. And I could tell it was difficult for her to talk about this. And so I said, this must be a hard time for you. And when I said that, the tears just began to pour down her face. She had lost her home in the hurricane. And within six months of Katrina hitting, she had also lost a grandchild, another family member, and one of her closest friends. She knew well 
what suffering was like. And many of you are here this morning and you're bearing that burden as well. Because the place where you are currently sitting at this moment, five years ago, was covered in water. And many of you lost your homes, your way of life, your neighborhoods, and they were converted into nothing but concrete slabs. And so today is a hard day for you as well. We were living in Jackson at the time, and I remember coming down here a couple of weeks after the storm, and it looked like someone had taken South Mississippi and picked it up and shook it until everything just broke. It was traumatic, and you still experience that today. And so when I think about things like that that we have experienced as a community and experienced as a church, and then just more broadly, the sufferings that we experience over the course of life, and then I read in this passage where Jesus says that his soul is troubled, it's a remarkable solace to me. It's a solace to me, and I pray that it's a solace to you to know that you have a God who knows what it's like to suffer. You have a God who knows what it's like to have a troubled soul. That's what Jesus is communicating to you this morning. He knows what it's like to be so torn up that he can't sleep in the middle of the night, that he has to wake up and he's praying to his Father with so much agony at the level of his soul that it causes him to break out into a sweat and bring so much stress upon his life that the capillaries ultimately break and he ends up bleeding that sweat. That's what Jesus experienced at the anticipation of the cross coming before him. And it tells me and it tells you that our sufferings in this life are not just the result of a meaningless, cold, impersonal universe, but they are purposeful. Our sufferings are purposeful. God uses them in our lives to do something far beyond anything that we could ever begin to imagine. The sufferings that we experience bring us into fellowship, into a real authentic communion with Christ and with His sufferings. And they show us something about the love of Christ for us, that He suffered in our place so that we could one day with Him have the hope of glory and all the benefits of the Gospel in this life and the next. That's what the sufferings of Jesus do for you. And so this inward turmoil that Jesus is experiencing here he is experiencing because he is standing in anticipation of his death. It is imminent. It's within just a few days. And so he's staring the cross in the face. You remember when we explored John chapter 2 when Jesus was changing the water into wine. He said to his mother, my hour has not yet come. Well now we read in this passage in verse 23, he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's seeing that in his future and in just a few days of his life. It's a strange thing for Jesus to say this. It's a strange thing for him to say that the hour has come and that it's going to be about his death and that somehow through his death he's going to be glorified and the Father is going to be glorified and his people are going to be drawn into fellowship and, and salvation in him because no king reigns that way. Anywhere. 
No king reigns by giving the appearance that he is being conquered. And, and when you look on that Good Friday and you see Jesus on the cross, it appears that everything is hopeless. Everything that he stood for was just a pile of bunk. But we know the other side of the story, don't we? That he rises again. So in speaking of this hour that he would be led off to be crucified, Jesus is saying something wildly counterintuitive, and it is giving expression to the counterintuitive nature of the entire gospel and the counterintuitive nature of the entire Christian life. And what he's showing you and what he's showing me is that the way up is the way down. That the way up is the way down. That the way in which Jesus is glorified is by living a perfectly obedient life which leads to a perfectly acceptable death. And he's showing us that the way that we experience the freedom and satisfaction and fellowship of being in union and fellowship with Christ is by giving up our self-righteousness and living in light of Christ's righteousness. Let that be the identifying factor of your life, the grid through which you engage the facets of your life. It's by trusting in the work of Christ for you rather than trusting in yourself and reflecting upon that as the means by which you live your life. And so here's the point. Here's the point that I I want you to take with you when you go out this morning and when you go out and just live in the ordinary context of your life. The point that Jesus wants us to see is that living in light of his life And his death, having that be the thing that permeates your soul, is what moves you out of having Christianity be a a set of theological propositions, a set of academic constructs, an impersonal, distant faith. And believing that moves Jesus into the level of your soul. It, it transforms you. It, it's a metamorphosis that happens at the level of your soul from the inside out and it changes everything. It changes everything that you see. It changes the way in which you live. It changes every facet of the way in which you engage your life. And the way in which you do that is by living in light of the life of Jesus and his death. When that begins to happen, when that begins to become the reality of your life, people see you And they see you and they think that person must be a follower of Christ. Because no one would live like that, no one would speak like that, no one would think like that if Jesus were just some convenient add-on to his life. That's how they'll see you. And so the question is, is how do we start moving in that direction? How do we head that way? Here's the answer. We move that way by letting Christ's obedient life and his perfectly sufficient suffering, sacrificial death be the internal reality of our souls by letting it marinate our souls. Those are some heavy-duty, glorious things in life. And if you just gloss over it and say, that's something that I've heard a million times before, you're going to miss it. You'll miss it completely. Last night, we had the elders and the deacons and the women in the church councils all over to our house for dinner. We 
we barbecued. I spent the whole weekend marinating and barbecuing 30 pounds of beef. It was a carnivore's paradise. Loved every minute of it. We marinated this meat and, and the aromas that were coming up were just beautiful. The meat sat in the marinade overnight. It tasted wonderful yesterday when we have it for, had it for dinner. There's a difference between marinating in something and just basting it on the surface. Many of us have Christianity basted on the surface. The outside gives the appearance of having that Christ-filled flavor, but the inside tastes dry and bland. And what Jesus is trying to get us to see here is that we need Him getting into the membranes of our souls, and until that happens, we will not be transformed by Him. Christianity will be a dog and pony show in our life. It will just be the surface act. It will not be the internal reality. And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. And it takes a lifetime of marinating in the gospel to begin to get this. It's taken my whole lifetime to get this. I feel like I'm a hundred miles into Texas starting to kind of get the picture of it. But you still have a thousand miles to go until you get to the other side. And that's the Christian life. It's a constant growing, a constant marinating in this gospel reality of the, of the life of Jesus Christ being applied to you as well as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ being applied to you. So here's what you need to see. When you look at verses 27 through 36, there is turmoil in Jesus' soul, but there's also a deep-seated sense of confidence. He's confident in going before his Father, and the reason why he's confident is because of the life that he has led. He has led a perfectly obedient life to his Father. His confidence is grounded in the fact that as a human, he obeyed at every point where you and I have failed. At every point. And he has experienced the same temptations that you and I experience as a human being. But he didn't succumb to that. He passes the test. And so he's staring death in the face and his soul is in turmoil about it, but he has this confidence and he has this confidence because of his life. That's the confidence that Jesus has. He's in distress here, though. His distress is not merely about the physical pain of the cross. His distress is coming because he knows that he is about to experience a fracture in the only perfect father-son relationship that ever existed. That relationship is about to become a complete disaster. If you had a father who constantly approached you with a cold, disapproving look where you could never do anything good enough to please Him. You know a little bit about what this is like, but you know about one-tenth of one percent about what Jesus was about to take on. Because Jesus had always lived in this face-to-face unity with His Father, 
perfect love. He, he never heard anything other than, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. That's all he knew from his father, from eternity past. And all that Jesus knew about his father was that he was connected at the hip with him. He's constantly, all the time when you read in the Gospels, talking about how much he loves his father, how he's one with his father, and all of that is about to go away. It's all about to get flushed down the drain. And that's the agony that Jesus is facing when He looks at His cross coming before Him. This is huge for us. This is huge for us on a practical level because He can endure that cross. And the reason why He can endure that cross is because He can look over the course of His life and He can say, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have completed the obedient task that the Father has called me to. Many of us, when we look at the Gospel, we see that the Gospel is about Jesus Christ dying on the cross to forgive us of our sins. That is 100% true. But that's only half of the Gospel. Yes, He has died on the cross to forgive all of His people of all of their sins to cast them off as far as the east is from the west. But the other thing that we need to be standing upon is the perfectly obedient life of Jesus Christ. The life of Jesus Christ needs to become our life. That's what he wants us to see here. It's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to lose sight of living in light of the life of Jesus Christ. And when I lose sight of Jesus' perfectly obedient life credited to me as I receive Him through faith, when I fail to be able to see that clearly, that explains absolutely why when I am confronted with something that I have done or that I have failed to do that causes offense to God or hurts somebody else, it explains why I get so blasted defensive about it. It explains why I want to just pass the blame. It explains why I beat myself up about it. It explains why sometimes I just don't really care. The reason why I react that way is because at the end of the day, I am trusting so much more in how I live my life than I am trusting in how Jesus lived His life for me. There is a world of difference between the two grounds of trust there. Part of the reason why it is hard for you to take criticism, for me to take criticism, is because you and I cannot deal with something standing against us. We cannot have that hanging over our head. So then we go way over here and tell ourselves that we just need to do better, just need to try harder, just need to suck it up and get better. And we rest upon that. Or we go way over to this extreme and we don't take responsibility for the ways in which we bring offense to God and hurt other people. Because we cannot have that hanging over our head. But when you start trusting in Jesus' life credited to you instead of your own, then all of that defensiveness, all that finger-pointing, all that self-loathing that you experience in your life, it starts to go away. Little by little, it starts to go away. And you can actually own your sin and repent from it. And the reason why is because you know that your sin is not being counted against you because it was already counted against Jesus for you. And so that tells me something. 
That tells me that when Jesus' life is flowing through your life and through my life, then we're set free to do two things. We're set free to take responsibility for our failures and we're set free to stop letting our failures beat us up. That's what we're set free to do. Because what Christ tells us in the Gospel is that it's not our life that we bring to Him. It's not our life that we bring to Him. It's His life that we bring to Him. It's His life that we stand upon. We don't stand before Him on the basis of our accomplishments, of our successes. We stand before Him on the basis of His success and His accomplishments given to us. And when we understand that, our identity and our source of self-validation does not come from ourselves. It stems from Jesus Christ for us. And that is the key to the Christian life. That's the key to living out the Christian life. It's not about earning favor with God. It's not about that. It's about realizing that Christ has already earned your favor for you through His life. That's the beauty of the Gospel. That's amazing grace. That's the fuel that instigates a beautiful, authentic life. Because Jesus is always speaking the truth. He's always forgiving. He's always full of love and compassion. He's always doing the right thing. Totally obedient to the Father. And when you entrust yourself to Him, He has given you that. That's how the Father sees you. He doesn't see you fundamentally as a screw-up. He sees you fundamentally as His Son, who He dearly loves, in whom He is well pleased. That's the beauty of what Jesus has done for you through His life. The Gospel is not fundamentally about what you achieve. It's about what Jesus has, received, has achieved for you. And when you believe that, you go into your family, you go home at night, you engage with your kids, you get up in the morning, and you go to work. You engage with your clients. You do what you have to do in this life, and you do it in a way that is authentic to who God already says that you are, in a way that is true to what Jesus has done for you, to what He says that you are, which is righteous, holy, forgiven, beautiful, And it drives you to embrace what Jesus has to say in verse 25. These are hard words. Don't just read past them superficially. Because this is what he says in verse 25. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus seems to be keying in to what may very well be the most significant reason why so many people are just Christian in name only. Or why they never embrace the Gospel in the first place. And it's because so few people, and maybe very few of us, have begun to realize that the way up is the way down. That just as Jesus lost His sake his life for the sake of His people and for the sake of His Father's glory, He's also calling us to follow in the same path. 
He's calling His disciples to follow Him in the same path. And the single thing that distinguishes a true follower from a false follower of Christ is that the true follower of Christ is starting to learn to give up ownership rights over his life. He's starting to hand his life over to Christ and receive the righteousness that Jesus brings him and the forgiveness that comes from his death. And he lives faithfully to that identity as you go about the ordinary aspects of your life. That's what the true follower of Christ does. But the false follower of Christ wants two things that cannot coexist. He wants ownership over his his life, authority over the spheres of his life, but then he also wants the benefits of the gospel that Jesus can only provide. But the reality is, is that you cannot have both. You cannot have both. And that is why Jesus uses such absolute language here when he talks about hating our life. That is absolute language. It's crazy talk in many respects. He does this on several occasions. He talks about if your eye causes you to sin, then you pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. No one would have any hands or any eyes if we took that literally. Nobody would. But what Jesus is saying here is he's he's taking seriously the issue of our life and the issue of sin. He's saying that if we're going to live the authentic Christian life, it's a life of death. It's a life of losing it. It's a life of giving over your authority over it. Giving over your radical, autonomous assertion that you are God over your own life and giving that over to Jesus Christ. And letting him have the benevolent authority over your life. He's saying that you cannot serve two masters. When Jesus talks about the fact that you cannot serve both God and money, he is applying a specific application to a general principle. That we cannot have something else be the authority over our, over our life while at the same time claiming that Christ is the authority over our life. No one can serve those two masters in their life. But it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive to the way in which we're so ingrained by nature and by the environment in which we live in to believe. Because the ethos that just gets woven into our lives day in and day out all the time is that we're the authority over our own lives. That we have the right to set the agenda and the ways in which we might go about fulfilling that agenda for our lives. And that's why the world hates this language. The world hates that Jesus says, hate your own life. It hates it when, Christianity, when, when they see Christianity and they see Christianity saying that there are certain things that are just absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And the reason why they hate that is because if there's no authority over our lives other than ourselves, then who has the right to tell us how we're supposed to live? and what we're supposed to believe. There's a famous poem by a British poet of the 19th century named William Ernest Henley. The name of the poem is called Invictus. Listen to what the last stanza says. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. What a brazen 
one-fingered salute being given to God right there. And how untrue that is. Because none of us, none of us are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. Whatever it is that we set our affections upon are the masters of our fate and the captains of our souls. They're the objects of our worship. They are the things that own us. They are the things that promise to bless us to the degree that we follow their rules and promise to curse us to the degree that we fail them. Here's the reality. Everybody is a slave to something. Everybody is. And everybody is a worshiper. Everybody is seeking salvation from something, from dissatisfaction, from discontent, from meaninglessness, from hopelessness. Everybody is seeking salvation. And we know that we cannot save ourselves, so we look to things outside of ourselves to satisfy those things, to save us from a meaningless, discontent, hopeless, dissatisfying life. And so we look to something else That's why it's so easy for us to seek satisfaction in pornography and other kinds of sexual thrills. And why it's so easy to seek meaning in our personal accomplishments and in what other people think about us. And why it's so easy to seek pleasure from the things that we can amass for ourselves. And why it's so easy to seek hope by living vicariously through our children or our parents or our spouse, or our friends, or someone or something else. Because we know that salvation always, always lies outside of ourselves. And we know that whatever it is that we're trusting in to save us from those things, whatever it is we're trusting in, we have to serve. But listen to me. If your hope is in those things, You're going to be like the girl who dresses up for prom in eager expectation of that night and whose date never comes. Or maybe he will come and take you and marry you and provide a lot of joy in your life. But on his deathbed, he'll say to you that he was just using you to satisfy his own lusts and that he never really loved you in the first place. Either way, you're cursed. Either way, you're totally cursed. Because those things that you're deriving life from, healing from, are band-aids and aspirin when what you really need is a heart transplant. They're, They're impotent sources of security completely impotent and powerless, and they cannot save you. But Jesus is saying here, what if there's a better way? What if there's a better way? He's saying that if you truly follow Him, if you have stopped trusting in yourself and you have started trusting in Him, that His righteous life that caused the Father to look at Him and say, you're my beloved Son, is the same life that now is yours. The same life that has been credited to you. That's how the Father sees you. And if that's the case, why not live like that? 
Why not live in a way that is authentic to who Jesus already says that you are? Why not live as if freedom and joy and pleasure and satisfaction and hope came from giving up the ownership of our life and giving over the ownership to Jesus, from transferring the title over to Him and allowing Him to marinate our souls and change us from the inside out? What if there is greater joy in Jesus owning your money rather than in you owning your money? What if there is greater satisfaction in Jesus owning your sexuality rather than you owning your sexuality? What if there is greater hope in Jesus owning your ambitions rather than in you owning your ambitions. Jesus is saying to you, there it is. There is greater hope. There is greater joy. There is greater satisfaction. Take me at my word. I've only been faithful to it for a gazillion years and I will continue to be so for a gazillion more. I'm always faithful to my word and it's always for the sake of your joy and for your well-being. And friends, that's the path to a beautiful life. It's not a self-righteous life. It is a life infused with Christ-likeness. It's a way of living authentic to who Jesus says that you really are. Forgiven, holy, loved by God loved by the God who has, who has hushed the law's loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame by the work of his life and at the cost of his death. That's the promise that you have. But it's a promise only to those who believe. Only to those who have stopped resting in themselves and started resting in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've yet to do that, consider yourself being pulled in rather than pushed out. And rest in Him today and take Him with you. Let's pray. Father, in this passage, we see Greeks coming and saying, we wish to see Jesus. And my prayer for each of us here, including myself, is that we would wish to see Jesus. And as we see Him, we would see ourselves as standing cleansed of everything that accuses us because we have the forgiveness that has been given to us through His death and the righteousness that has been given to us through His life. Oh, that that would just weave its way into our souls and change us from the inside out so that we would live in light of that, that it would give us a whole new set of lenses in the way in which we make our way through this journey that You have brought us upon. We thank You for the hope of glory that we have in Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us. Let us believe that and live it for your sake, 
we pray. Amen.